Hello and welcome to Deep North. Today we'll be speaking to staff writer Eric Pomeranke. We'll be reading and discussing his article, A Matter of State, uh, regarding the Council of Europe Summit in Reykjavik that took place at the end of May. It's a cold spring day in Reykjavik, and winds buffet optimistic tourists in flip-flops. Above, the sky hangs low, an endless expanse of gray. Normal enough for May. Today, however, bulletproof black limousines loiter in front of Harpa, and reports of cyber attacks filter out of Althinki. A helicopter belches shimmering hot wakes of exhaust as it lists over Reykjavik rooftops. And on these rooftops, men on radios armed with binoculars and high-powered sniper rifles scan the city below. For most Icelanders, these are sights only seen in the movies. This is the fourth-ever summit of the Council of Europe, and it's likely the most important event hosted by the small island nation since the 1986 meeting of Reagan and Gorbachev. From May 16 to 17, world leaders convened in Reykjavik's sleek, modern concert hall and conference center, Harpa, to discuss the future of Europe. Among the foreign dignitaries attending the summit were President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and French Prime Minister Emmanuel Macron. One leader, noticeably absent from the talks, however, was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. In the lead-up to the summit, the Ukrainian leader's possible presence in Reykjavik had the town buzzing. With the war in Ukraine and the creation of a register of damages at the top of the agenda, Zelensky was very much in focus in the months prior to the meeting. The interest was no doubt animated by respect for this man, who has unexpectedly taken such a large role on the international stage, but also curiosity of the morbid sort. Zelensky's fundraising tour through Europe just days before the summit seemed to be a hint that he'd make a showing. He visited Germany, France, Italy, the Vatican, and the UK to bolster Ukrainian air defenses before heading off to the G7 Hiroshima summit in Japan. It was only as a Boeing 757 from Rzhov, a Polish city near the Ukrainian border, was in the air that Zelensky's absence was confirmed. A game of last-minute changes, no doubt, to keep Russian intelligence on its toes. So at the Reykjavik City Airport, generally reserved for private jets and regional prop planes, not international passenger jets, it was Prime Minister Denis Shmihal and Minister of Justice Denis Malyushka who stepped off the 757 into the cold May rain. The Ukrainian leader did still make an appearance at the summit, teleconferencing onto a jumbotron screen to address the assembly. After Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdottir formally opened the meeting, he thanked the assembled nations for their support, detailing how that very night... Ukrainian air defenses had intercepted 18 Russian missiles, even missiles previously deemed, quote, unstoppable. In typical Zelensky fashion, flanked by Ukrainian flags and sporting an olive drab military t-shirt, he noted that although Ukraine still faces many challenges, there had been no casualties in the latest attacks. Calling it a historic result, he noted that the successes of the night would not have been possible at the outset of the war. Quote, If we are able to do this, is there anything we can't do when we are united and determined to protect lives? 
The answer is that we in Unity will give 100% in any field when we have a rule to protect our people and our Europe. 100% of the success of defense operations is guaranteed by weapons and training of our soldiers, and I thank everyone who strengthens our defense. It was something of a coincidence that Iceland held the presidency of the council at such a critical time. Although Iceland was early to accede to the Council of Europe, joining in 1950, one year after the council's 1949 founding, the country's role has historically been a rather passive one. In fact, for decades after its accession, Iceland declined to take on the rotating responsibilities of the presidency. It was only in 1999 that Iceland first took on the presidency of the Council of Europe, signaling a new era of active participation on the international stage. This more active role has been put to the test by recent events in Europe. For a small country like Iceland, with no military, our entire existence is based on the international rules-based order and international law, Foreign Minister Thordis Kolbrun Reykjavik Gilvadotir explains. We rely on mutual respect for rules that state that countries are not allowed to make changes to their borders through force or invade each other's territories. Alongside Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdottir, Minister Thordis led the Icelandic delegation, both hosting and participating in the talks. Like Katrin, Thordis enjoys the honor of being one of Iceland's youngest ever ministers, having taken office in 2017 at the age of 29. Katrin Jakobsdottir, in comparison, took office as Minister of Education, Science, and Culture at 33, still a rather remarkable accomplishment. Participation in large, multilateral organizations such as the Council of Europe presents something of a paradox for small nations. On the one hand, such nations can find it hard to influence their larger peers. Having a seat at the table next to world powers like Germany and France may not be so helpful if the nation's needs are totally overshadowed. On the other hand, it is precisely these organizations that allow small states a path to influence and constrain the power of larger states. It's worth noting that depending on one's definition, most states in Europe are indeed small states. After decolonization following the Second World War and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the number of small states has exploded, with more than half of the members of the United Nations having populations of 10 million or less. Even against this background, however, Iceland is an outlier. Despite its small size, the country has acted as a role model on the international stage. Seen as a leader in environmentalism and social justice, in addition to a leading exporter of culture, Iceland has been able to sway public opinion in a way that punches far above its weight. According to Thordis, in the past year, we have seen the power of multilateralism and standing together in defense of our shared values. Representing 46 member states and some 800 million people, the Council of Europe does important work administering the European Court of Human Rights, a body to which citizens of member states can appeal when they believe their rights have been violated. However, because much of the work done by the Council revolves around articulating shared European values, it has been criticized for being a largely symbolic institution that has difficulty acting decisively. 
as Thordy says, yes, organizations such as the council go through different phases and their relevance and effectiveness can fluctuate. However, the ideals and aims of the Council of Europe remain extremely relevant, and it is the duty of the Council of Europe and its members to continuously work to ensure that the organization is fit for its purpose. Since the beginning of the Russo-Ukrainian War, Iceland has done more than merely condemn the invasion. During the first 12 months of the invasion, Iceland welcomed almost 2,700 refugees from Ukraine, says Thordis. The overwhelming support of the Icelandic nation to the Ukrainian cause has been key to this end. It has made me both proud and happy to see how Icelandic people have extended their support to the people of Ukraine, whether by sending warm clothes to Ukraine or opening their homes for people fleeing the conflict. Additionally, just days before the beginning of the summit, Iceland committed further support to Ukraine in the form of a mobile field hospital. Such hospitals play a vital role in caring for both injured combatants and civilians, and crucially, they can function independent of infrastructure. These hospitals can be deployed in even the most war-torn regions of the country and still supply their own power and filtered water. Such capabilities, however, come at a cost. 1.2 billion ISK, or 8.6 million USD, 7.9 million euros to be exact. And more are needed. In its presidency of the Council of Europe, Iceland has also played an important role in establishing a register to record and document damages caused by the war. This makes a difference, Thordis notes. Evidence and claims for damages, loss, or injury will play an important role as the Ukrainian people seek justice. The creation of this Register of Damages is the keystone of this summit of the Council of Europe. It is notable as being the only reparations registry created during the conflict in question, and European leaders hope that it will expedite justice for the Ukrainian people. The registry will be active for some three years and operated out of The Hague, with a branch in Ukraine as well. Notably, Six nations rejected the agreement, Turkey, Serbia, Hungary, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Though the creation of the register is an important step, there are nevertheless many difficulties ahead. When the Council of Europe expelled Russia from its body, according to Russia, they left of their own accord, it severed one of the last lines of communication between leaders in Europe and Russia. Georgia, invaded by Russia in 2008, still has yet to see any reparations paid, and since 2015, Russia passed legislation allowing its courts to overrule decisions by the European Court of Human Rights, an organ of the Council of Europe. How exactly such reparations are to be enforced will be a problem for future leaders. The Council of Europe was founded in the aftermath of the Second World War, by the 1949 Treaty of London. The idea was first articulated in 1943, with war still raging in Europe by Winston Churchill, who dreamed of a Europe united by peace and a commitment to human rights. The European Convention on Human Rights, signed in 1950, is often cited as the Council of Europe's greatest achievement. This convention forms the core of membership in the Council of Europe, 
with all current members as signatories and prospective members to the Council of Europe expected to ratify the agreement as soon as possible. With its greatest achievement so near its founding, one might suppose that the Council of Europe's best days are behind it. It doesn't help that the organization is often conflated with two other European bodies, the European Council and the Council of the European Union. Lawmakers in Brussels have never really been known for their poetic side, of course. The Council of Europe unfortunately shares its anthem, Beethoven's Ode to Joy, and its flag, a ring of golden stars on a field of blue, with the European Union as well, making the exact identity and function of this important body rather obscure to all but a small class of mandarins. But the Council of Europe predates all of these bodies. And although supranational bureaucracies are not known for their ability to act decisively, the Council of Europe continues to carry out important work. Prior to the simultaneous expulsion and voluntary withdrawal of Russia, for example, the Council of Europe played a key role in monitoring the Russian judicial system and ensuring that international norms were upheld. Since its founding, the Council of Europe has convened a summit only four times. The first, in 1993, concerned the integration of former Eastern Bloc nations into Europe, resulting in the creation of guidelines for membership that continue to be relevant to this day. The second summit, in 1997, saw a further enhancement of human rights policies, and the third meeting in 2005 responded to setbacks in European democracy by creating a set of principles nations must adhere to in order to receive international support. With only three previous summits, it seems significant that the fourth ever was hosted in Iceland. By far one of the Council's smallest members, challenged by fellow microstates Liechtenstein, Monaco, San Marino, and a handful of others, Iceland may not have been the obvious choice for such a meeting. War in Ukraine, security issues, and a backlash to some of the Council's most fundamental principles in nations like Russia, Poland, and Hungary are all much bigger than the small nation. Small nations, however, have the most to gain and lose from peaceful coexistence, meaning that it is precisely small nations like Iceland that must advocate for the principles of liberalism, democracy, and human rights. As Foreign Minister Thordy states, Iceland has the benefit of being a wealthy country and being well-connected to the rest of the world. We have also had the fortune to enjoy good relations with the world, and it is not uncommon to meet people who have a special affinity for Iceland, even if they have never visited. All this works to our advantage, and in this respect, I have noticed that the voice of Iceland probably has outsized influence in relation to our very small population. With these advantages come responsibilities. I believe that Iceland has a duty to be a voice for human rights and the multilateral system. International summits attract a certain drama. Climate change, economic upswings and downswings, and yes, wars, all unfold over months and years, making it hard to pinpoint the moment of decision. Something attracts us to the simplicity of an event, 
one moment in time we can point to and say that something important happened. The glamour of private jets and world leaders promised such an event. The certainty that decisions are being made and things are moving forward. The summit lasted only 48 hours, and despite months of build-up and high hopes, the main outcome of such summits is, as a rule, group photos named family photos by summit organizers and press releases. In the world of foreign relations, which runs mainly off of the exchange of pre-written speeches, it may quite simply be the coming together that is of importance here. In the face of mounting expenses to host the summit, some critics claimed that the meeting could have been an email or a Zoom call instead. However, it's at meetings like the Council of Europe Summit that ministers and dignitaries are able to discuss the pressing issues of the day in less scripted contexts and realize the European community that they represent. Indeed, it was during the summit that Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdottir was finally able to secure emission allowances for Iceland's airliners, which she had long pushed for. Meeting face-to-face does, in fact, get results. And, as Foreign Minister Thordis stated shortly after the summit's conclusion, we should do it more often. Well, thank you for that, Eric. You're welcome. So, first off... um, How familiar were you with the uh, Council of Europe prior to writing this article? Yeah, you know, uh, like I say, it is, um, it's not totally obvious, actually, what the Council of Europe does. And I did actually have to do a little bit of digging to find out. Um, And, you know, there is uh, always a little bit of, I don't know, humor to me uh, in just the absolute complexity of European bureaucracy um, because, you know, I mean, I do think it's quite funny that there is both, so there's the Council of Europe, right, uh, which is what we're talking about right now, but there is also a European Council and a Council of the European Union. And just to be clear, the latter two, uh, so the Council of Europe, no, see, see, I think I messed it up already. Uh, So the Council of Europe is distinct from the European Union. So it's its own body and it's separate from the EU. Uh, the other two, uh, which I'm not gonna say in case I mess them up again, uh, but, I got, but I got them right the first time, those are part of the EU. And so the Council of Europe is older than the EU. Um, and even though it shares a flag and the anthem, uh, it is a totally different organization. And you know, I mean, I think that it is kind of just worth briefly saying this again, right? Because it might not be totally clear to everybody. Uh, but, you know, basically one of the main tasks of the Council of Europe is to administer the European Court of Human Rights. And so when uh, people who are in the member states, uh, they press something through their local judicial system and they still feel like justice hasn't been served, uh the European Court of Human Rights is a kind of court of last appeal where people can bring cases that they feel haven't really been properly addressed in their home countries. Yeah, exactly. And um, so the, the council actually, it does not have the power to enact laws. Um, th- that's right. Yeah. So again, this is not like an EU body, so it doesn't really have a legislative function in that way. Yeah. So besides the... Uh, Court of Human Rights and um, 
this sort of power to put pressure on member states to enact legislation? Is there anything else that the Council of Europe does? Well, you know, something that I would kind of point to would have been their role in monitoring the Russian judicial system. Um, and so up until it recently left, uh, you know, something like half of the cases that were actually heard by the European Court of Human Rights were from Russia. And, you know, so the it's kind of tricky because in a way uh, the task of the Council of Europe is fundamentally symbolic. It's about articulating what European values are and it's about upholding human rights. And so it has been criticized in the past for, you know, maybe not having the same kind of punching power uh, as the EU uh, and really kind of being able to act in a meaningful way. Um, and, you know, there's maybe a sense in which this kind of task uh, maintaining the European Court of Human Rights is always going to be a little bit symbolic and it's never really going to be, uh, you know, just kind of swooping in and fixing things. Um, but, you know, I mean, to just kind of briefly look at the Russian case, um, you know, it is, it's complicated, right? Um, because on the one hand, there's kind of something to be said for keeping nations like that in the fold, because as long as it's still a part of the organization, you can still monitor. There are at least subtle mechanisms where you can exert some influence to kind of make the situation better. Um, and even though after the declaration of war, or rather the you know invasion and the so-called special operation, you know uh, the Council of Europe ejected Russia. You know it, like it's still not totally clear that that's exactly the right thing to do, right? Because after that happens, like there's there's no more contact anymore, and there are still a lot of people in Russia who, you know, haven't had justice served, and so it's this very kind of hard balancing act where you know on the one hand, member states have to uphold these values, but then on the other hand, it's precisely the states that don't uphold these values that kind of need the task and the services provided by the Council of Europe the most. Yeah, exactly. And I'm curious, um, of those Russian cases that are referred to the Court of Human Rights, do you know that their trajectory, say, that if the court rules in favor of maybe the claimant against the Russian authorities, um, what's the trajectory of those cases after that ruling has been made? Does it have any... Yeah, I mean, again, this is the tricky thing, right? Because, I mean, it is fundamentally a court, so it has a judicial power and it can say what is legal and what is illegal, and yet it doesn't have an executive or legislative function to actually enforce things. And, you know, I mean, I think just generally uh, this kind of, I mean, I kind of want to call it like a vicious cycle uh, is something that I kind of ran up against time and time again in reading this because, you know, it's like on the one hand, yes, it's this world summit and we want to kind of really believe that something important is going to kind of come out of it. Um, and yet, you know, I mean, time and time again, I feel like when I was talking with people about this, um, there is this maybe frustration uh, with the task of the Council of Europe because you know, like on the one hand, yes, uh, this is a really important task to kind of 
uphold human rights and in a time of war in Europe, which is the worst war since the Second World War, you know, like it is important to kind of get together and talk about these topics. And yet there's very little that the Council of Europe alone can do. And, you know, so again, this is what is important here, right? It's the multilateralism, it's the working together. And so, you know, in a very roundabout way to answer your question, the Council of Europe by itself cannot actually do that much in the Russian case, right? Right. Um, and am I right in saying that sort of the highlight of the Council as far as outcomes are concerned was the sort of registry of damages? Was that, um, am I right in, in understanding it in that yeah, way? Yeah, so I mean, that, that that's kind of like the big concrete outcome out of all of this. Um, that's the thing that you know everyone can kind of point to that didn't exist before the meeting and after the meeting it does exist. So this is, you know, like the the concrete outcome. And could you, you know, explain that briefly? How how the registry? I, I know you mentioned it and yeah. went over it in, in the article, but it would be useful. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, it is an organized way of keeping Russia accountable for the damages to infrastructure, loss of life, and all of these things uh, in Ukraine. And of course, you know, uh, reconstruction is going to be a very long and very expensive process. And the registry of damages is one way to, you know, ensure that some justice is served to the Ukrainian people. Um, this, of course, kind of returns us to the leitmotif of this conversation, though, which is that the actual mechanism of enforcement isn't totally clear. And also, you know, as I stated, the other kind of recent conflict that Russia has been in, Georgia in 2008, um, there have yet to be reparations paid there. Um, in the lead up to the war with the buildup of Russian troops on the border. Yeah, we saw this uh, just battery of Western sanctions against Russia, you know, I mean, really just kind of ejecting them from the Western economy. And, you know, there is something to be said for if they haven't responded to sanctions that heavy already, um, what is actually going to get them to act? And again, it's unfortunately not clear. Right. Um, and as you mentioned, this is the fourth summit that the council holds since its founding in 1949. Um, why was Eisen chosen as host? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, at a very practical level, uh, Iceland was the president uh, of the council in its uh, kind of six-month rotation uh, when the summit was scheduled. Uh, it is worth noting that a couple other nations, I believe at least Austria, uh, did offer to host the summit uh, because of Iceland's somewhat limited capabilities. Um, but, you know, I mean, I do think that it's kind of symbolically important uh, for a small nation to host a summit like this. And, you know, I mean, of course, the obvious uh, point of reference for a lot of people is going to be like the Reagan-Gorbachev meetings, uh, like the ones which famously took place um, in Hufthi, uh, the White House down by the sea, uh, by the coast in Reykjavik, um, where Reagan and Gorbachev kind of hammered out the uh, foundations of the SALT, the Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty uh, to kind of uh, tamp down on nuclear arms proliferation. Um, 
And so, you know, I mean, there is this sense in which Iceland kind of straddling the Atlantic, it's in the middle of things. There's very much still a certain kind of um, Cold War holdover, I think, in some thinking about Iceland. Um, so, you know, I think that it was important for it to be here. And, you know, I mean, also, as I kind of say, it's exactly like the smallest nations that have the most to gain from peace and the most to lose from war. And so even though, uh, you know, I mean, it's maybe, you know, I mean, a lot of people were kind of upset, uh, actually, that the Council of Europe was being held here because, you know, it was expensive. I mean, of course, a certain level of security is needed uh, when you have world leaders and, you know, uh, the Icelandic police uh, needed to buy a lot more equipment. Uh, they, you know, aren't necessarily already outfitted uh, for this kind of operation, just given what life looks like in Iceland. And so, yes, uh, weapons needed to be acquired and uh, like a whole fleet of new SUVs for kind of transporting the politicians around. And, uh, you know, somewhat funnily, uh, I believe like 250 suits uh, had to be bought for uh, kind of undercover plainclothes officers. You know, so like, like it's very easy for people to kind of point at these expenses and to kind of get upset about them um, and to kind of ask why money is being spent on this and not that. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that Iceland as, uh, you know, a nation of 380-ish thousand people, you know, like it's really important for Iceland to be one of the main advocates for peace and human rights. Uh, because when the big players in the world kind of aren't uh, playing nice, uh, it's, it's, it's nations like Iceland that lose. And do we have any um, rough figures or estimates of the total cost of the meeting? Yeah, I believe the total cost was 1.4 billion ISK, uh, which is about 10 million USD or about 9 million euro. You know, so it is expensive, obviously. And uh, of course, this is borne by the taxpayer ultimately. But, you know, I mean, 10 million USD, 9 million euro is also maybe actually not as expensive as you might think for a meeting of this scale. I mean, of course, it was just 48 hours, but um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, a, a lot has been, I actually have been speaking to um, two police officers lately, um, one of whom I was trying to schedule an interview with, and I think I spoke to him in January or February, and this has always been like, well, I'm completely swamped until after the meeting, and mm. and you could just hear it from law enforcement that this has been a huge deal and so much preparation and all of the logistical figuring out has been quite unprecedented. And um, uh, as famously noted <laughs> by the Minister of Justice, Iceland will be keeping those guns that they <laughs> imported for the meeting. Yeah, you know, it's also worth uh, just pointing out that uh, it was also really disruptive to just kind of daily life for about a week around uh, the uh, around the summit. Yeah, um, I mean, I chose a lot to of roads work, were closed. I chose to work remotely for those two days uh, as opposed yeah. to dealing with random road closures. Yeah, and of course, you know, it took, um, you know, a day or two before the summit to kind of get all the barricades up and going. You know, so for about a week or so, yeah, life was a little bit disrupted. Uh, a lot of 
buses that kind of go uh, through the central station, Hlemud, uh had to kind of be rerouted. And so it's a little bit harder for people to get to work and all these things, you know, so like, like these are real concerns. Um, but, you know, I think that also um, the thing that was really like, like the thing that really stood out is like how novel this kind of thing was to a lot of Icelanders because these kind of events generally don't happen. Uh, I, actu- I actually know somebody uh, who lives and works pretty close to Harpa and, you know, they're just around that area a lot because it's where they live and work. And, you know, se- several times uh, there was a, you know, a, a police officer uh, with a uh, submachine gun who just kind of asked them what business they had there. And there's definitely something for Icelanders who kind of pride themselves in general on a certain kind of independent spirit uh, that really kind of goes against the grain there. You know, it, well, this is my house, <laughs> this is where I work. What do you mean? What am I doing here? Uh, and I think that, you know, a lot of people were, you know, somewhat rightfully. Uh, indignant about this yeah i remember i mean growing up in the states you were used to sort of holstered weapons from security guards at Mm. the high school or police officers but then i remember after i moved back to iceland uh, where firearms are rarely if ever visible unless you're hunting somewhere and then traveling to i remember i went to cairo in 2016 and and seeing sort of military personnel or cops with actual submachine guns or semi-auto, you know, these big, heavy, semiotic weapons, it was quite scary. And I, and I can imagine that, you know, that kind of thing is not a very common sight in Iceland. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess um, another common thing that I saw uh, people saying um, was, like, why does it have to be in Harpa? Like, like, why can't it kind of be somewhere out of the way that doesn't affect people's daily lives? And, you know, I mean, I guess just briefly, the rebuttal that I would give to that is, you know, if we're going to have this kind of meeting, you know, yes, it is very sheltered from the public. And, you know, even for the press, it's like a very structured experience. Like, there's really no time when you get to just go up to one of these ministers and just ask them a question. Like, there are... You, you know, like like there's a press box, like the press are just kind of watching this on a screen from a separate room in Harpa. Uh, they have their own conference, and then afterwards there's, you know, like this kind of group photo session. Like th- there's a lot of structure getting in the way of like actually interacting with these people. And, you know, so obviously that's on, on purpose. Um, but, you know, I mean, I will say that it is, you know, for an event like this, which is highly symbolic, image matters. And it is important to have something like this in the middle of the city where there's at least the idea of, like, accountability to the people. You know, I don't think that it is a lot nicer to have these important summits just way off, tucked away where people can't see them. I think it's good to have it, you know, in the middle of things where, in theory, you know, people can still, you know, I mean, it's not like the public can just kind of walk in and say hi, right? But again, like, this is a symbolic event, and I think it's important to kind of have it in town uh, and, you know, like not have this turn into, say, like Davos or something where it's just in some Swiss uh, ski chalet or whatever. <laughs> um, finally, the uh, Seneca and me thought immediately when it was announced that Iceland would be granted extension on its uh, emission allowances. 
um, the first thing that came to my mind was, yes, this is probably sort of the kickback that Iceland gets for hosting this summit. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything, is there any evidence to go with that very cynical reading? Uh, you know, I mean, it could well be the case. Uh, I don't pretend like I have special uh, insight into um, Katrin's plans. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, I mean, there's also just something to be said for, like, asking something in person. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we've all had the experience of uh, sending 20 emails and nothing coming out of it, and then just, like, a five-minute in-person conversation actually gets something done. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of that. Uh, but... Yeah, you know, I mean, sure, uh, the emission allowance thing is maybe easy to critique because, I mean, of course, Iceland has a lot of its international image caught up in being a leader in environmentalism. You know, then there is just the other fact that uh, without tourism, which relies on air traffic, uh, the economy here would be severely affected. So, yeah, it's all it's all a very hard balancing act, right? Yeah, I will say that I had one idea, uh, just as a very random tangent during uh, COVID, that that Iceland should sell off its fleet of uh, <laughs> of, of planes, um, use that money to finance uh, some kind of green boating enterprise, so that we could become the first country that you could only travel to using green energy. But that's neither here nor there. I don't think that'd be a particularly viable for people who'd like to go to Tenerife on a it's short notice. There's a certain romance to boat travel. And I mean, now that half of everyone kind of works from home, I mean, I guess there's no reason why you can't just uh, work on the boat Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for it. Well, thank you, Eric. It was a very enlightening article and uh, discussion. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Ice and Review at our website.